everybody, and welcome back to the Shine a Light podcast. I have another Skype guest on with me today. So, Preston, I'm going to have you introduce yourself. Cool. What's up, Miss Megan? Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Preston Moore, and uh, I am from Texas, a place called College Station where Texas A&M is. And uh, we just moved to Columbus, Ohio from Philadelphia. My wife and I lived up there for about eight years, and um, which we love it here in the Midwest, all these nice nice folks around here, reminds me of home. And um, what else? I uh, am a person in long-term recovery from drug and alcohol addiction, and what that means is I, I haven't used drugs or alcohol since September 10th of 2001. Um, so this coming September will be 18 years. What else? I'm also about to turn 39, which is, uh, I'm already claiming 40, I'm trying to trick myself. Um, and to just make easing into my 40s, which is uh, um, which is something I've done for a long time. And then what else? Uh, yeah, I think that's it. Oh, I do uh, outreach and marketing for a mental health and um, addiction hospital here in Columbus. Uh, here in Columbus, called Columbus Springs. It's a 24/7 uh, mental health and addiction hospital. We have you know all kinds of different group therapies and whatnot. And the bigger company is called Springstone, and they have. Uh, um, we have hospitals all over the nation, so I know we got one up in Cleveland. I'm not sure about Michigan. I'm sure, uh, I would have to guess there's something there, but um, but anyway. So yeah, that's what I do. I get to okay. go around and talk to people about mental health and addiction stuff. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I was telling Preston before we started recording that this is a topic I've been asked a couple times to cover. So I'm just so happy that you said yes to talking about this because I think it's something that's definitely very important. Um, so you hinted a little bit at what you do, which leads us into what you want to shine a light on. So can you tell us what you are going to shine a light on today? Yeah, absolutely. I would just like to shine a light on mental health and addiction recovery um, as a whole. Mental health um, is relatively something new, but I feel like um, you know, over the last 18 years of my own personal experience with drug and alcohol addiction and recovery, working with people in in all different variations, stages in their recovery, mental health is a huge piece. It's also something that um, my wife has struggled with uh, probably for a while, but even more recently, which I'll tell you about in, in a little bit, but just moving the conversation forward in normalizing that conversation and getting away from stigmatizing. I, I even feel like stigmatize when you know when we talk about the stigma of mental health or addiction. I feel like even that word is a little. I, I call it like industry speaking. Not everybody, you know, resonates with that word or totally understands it. So what I like to shine light on is normalizing the conversation of mental health and addiction and making it okay for not only people to say I am struggling, but make it easier for them to reach out for help and how to do that and what that looks like and how to go from, you know, struggling to, you know, I guess hopeless to hopeful and to help other people, you know, uh, do some of the same. So that's what I like to shine a lot on that. Awesome. And this is something that is very personal to you. So I'm going to kind of just open it to let you tell your story and I'll sort of interject with some questions as I have them, but I'm going to give you the floor to tell your story. Cool, cool. I'll I'll try to do a, a Cliff Notes version, okay. and then you can pick, you can pick through there if you like. But um, so I grew up in, in Texas. Uh, both my parents were business owners. My dad was a uh, he owned a, a newspaper um, and uh, the local newspaper, and my mom owned a hair salon. And so uh, the funny thing is, if you ever wanted to know what was going on around town, either my mother or father would yeah. know the scoop. And uh, you know, we were very active in our community. We couldn't go anywhere without um, running into people that we know. And as an extreme extrovert, I absolutely loved it. But um, but as I was growing up and started to experiment with drugs and alcohol and, um, you know, skipping school and doing, you know, uh, things that I, you know, ended up doing, uh, I realized that there's a lot of people that know me and I would uh, I would get told on. So I got really good at, like, sneaking around or, um, you know, the presenting one way, like I kind of have my stuff together and then acting another way. So, you know, this kind of chameleon, you know, trying to be 
who I thought you wanted me to be in whatever scenario or situation. And in a lot of ways, I feel like that's, you know, that's a skill, but equally, um, one of my goals today is to try to be the same person with all groups. Mm -hmm. Um, but I didn't learn that until I, until I uh, grew up. But, um, drugs and alcohol were kind of a big part of my growing up, alcohol specifically. I mean, it was, a, we, we, um, we were always very social. We had a lot of parties. We went to a lot of parties and I remember, thinking that uh, or like anytime we did anything fun on the weekends whatever alcohol was always a part of it so when I started out young I was kind of you know I wanted to experiment like I wanted to be like well what's the great thing about you know alcohol and eventually drugs and um, uh, smoking weed and, and then you know from that kind of turned on to experimentation but um, you know, I used to, I started off getting in trouble with like petty stuff, you know, getting, you know, getting in trouble for minor in possession. That's what they call it down there. If you're underage and have alcohol, you know, cops bust the high school party to, I got in trouble one time from stealing from the mall and my parents would, would find things in my room and I'd get in trouble. But, um, the, my problems really started when I got out from under my parents' thumb because early on that was one of my big um, my big things was uh, if I could just, if my parents just wouldn't tell me what to do or if I could just get out from under their control, you know, everything would be okay. And um, I got my first DWI in, DWI in high school. I don't know what y'all call it up here. I think they call it a OVI, Operating Vehicle on the Influence or something yeah, like that. Yeah, in Michigan but, it's a DUI or a DWI. Yeah, there you go. That's it. So I got my first one in, in, in high school, senior year in high school, um, and I got I graduated high school um, in 1998. I got my real estate license really quickly. Um, a friend of a family owned a real estate company, and so I wasn't necessarily college material, so I did that. And then that's when everything kind of started ramping up. I got kicked out of my house, my parents' house, because I was a punk and didn't listen to my mother. Imagine that. Um, Can I but, pause you for one second yeah, to ask, what age did you start drinking? Yeah. Uh, sorry, I was taking a swig okay. of your coffee. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I don't really know, to be honest. I can't really, if I probably guessed in grades, I would say... You know, like fifth, sixth grade, something wow. like that, maybe seventh grade. And that that was just like, you know, uh, having a beer or, you know, getting a six-pack or something. I can't really remember the exacts, but um, since it was always around, like, you know, like I would take sips of my parents' uh, alcohol, which I absolutely hated the taste of. But if I remember correctly, probably somewhere around, like, between the eighth and ninth grade year, somewhere around there is when I really started. Alcohol was like a regular part of of my weekends, and then you know started smoking weed, which is that's really probably my my was always my go to because the thing about alcohol for me was number one, I didn't like the taste. Number two, it was hard for me to you know I had to rely on someone else to get right. Um, but with with weed and other drugs, I could get that at school. And so I didn't have to rely on anybody. The other thing that I, you know, kind of caught on to early on was, you know, if you have too much alcohol, it's very difficult to hide it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Versus with weed and other drugs, you, like you can, you know, for me, I could smoke weed and be high at school. We would leave school, go get high, come back, and we would, you know, go on about our day. You know, it was kind of a, it became a normal thing but you know kind of just ramped up into into high school and here's the other thing that I always try to paint a picture um, is I am not anti-drug or anti-alcohol and I think a lot of people can have healthy relationships with drugs and alcohol um, as adults and I didn't get in trouble every time I you know use drugs and alcohol but every time I got in trouble in one way shape or another alcohol and drugs were, were involved um, and when I say get in trouble, whether it's get in trouble with the law, get in trouble with my family, getting in trouble with girlfriends, mm -hmm. getting in trouble in social situations, every single time I ever had a negative consequence in my life, alcohol and drugs in some way, shape, or form was related. And so, um, you know, for a lot of years, it was just fun, experimentation, weekends, 
Um, you and know. did your parents know? I know you just said that you were kind of living a double life a little bit. So were your parents aware? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my parents, you know, they did a really good job. They were open with me. Um, I, I, you know, I joke with my with our extended family. We don't have a really big immediate family, but we have a really big extended family. And I always joke around and say that uh, at the minimum, our crew is uh, would be considered heavy drinkers. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a you know, alcoholics and drug addicts tend to hang around each other a lot. So. Um, you know, when it's a group of heavy drinkers, that type of drinking looks normal. But if like a, a more social or more moderate drinker saw how much people drank, you know, in some circles, they'd be like, oh my God, they're, you know, they're definitely alcoholics. But um, that's something I learned. <laughs> that's something I learned uh, a long time ago was you don't, you don't, um, get too many friends or uh, have any uh, too many good conversations if you go around calling people alcoholics and drug addicts. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, it, alcohol and drugs were always, uh, I say drugs loosely, but they know, they knew that, that I was experimenting and quite frankly, you know, they were okay with it. You know, there were occasions where my parents would, you know, uh, would offer, hey, son, you want, you know, I'd be like 16, 17 years old and my dad would be like, hey, son, you want a beer? Mm -hmm. And of course, my question was, well, can I have like more than one? He's like, no, just a beer. I'm like, no, I'll pass because <laughs> I was really looking for the effect. Yeah. Uh, so at what point did it turn into like what you would call an addiction? Um, you know, that's a good question. I, here's, here's the thing. Um, I feel like, and this is probably, you know, we, we, well, I tend to talk to people that are uh, and associate things with, with my past experience. So, for example, um, both my parents were business owners. I learned from a very, very early age work ethic, which means that they didn't have the option to call in sick. So, if something needed to be done, if someone didn't show up, if someone was to go without a paycheck, it was my parents. It was the business owners. And so my dad, being a, being a heavy drinker, um, you know, he always kind of taught me no matter what you do, you show up to work and you pay mm -hmm. your bills. And when you do that, you know, that's what responsible people do. And so what I took from that was as long as I went to work and paid my bills, nobody can tell me anything. And so I was really good at showing up to work no matter what. But the, the thing, so to answer your question, a lot of people think of, addiction as like the brown bag alcoholic yeah. or the person that can't keep a job or the person that's kind of lost everything or the heroin user or whatever and I think those are the ones that are easy to diagnose those are like the the Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer and the crew of reindeer right like they're the, the obvious one the harder ones to diagnose are all of his friends you know the ones that have keep the job that you know more or less have a you know have the family around but you know you don't know that behind the scenes um, there's quite a lot of dysfunction um, and so when I when what I started what my addiction really looked like was I couldn't consistently manage what was going to happen once I started drinking and using so going back to this idea of I didn't get in trouble every time I drank because a lot of times when I drank, I kept it together. Mm -hmm. But when I would get in trouble or have a negative consequence, and I look back and I'm going, "How did that happen? Like yeah. why?" You know. And for a lot of, uh, in a lot of ways, because I hung around with people that drank and used the way I did, it was very being uh, being addicted never crossed my mind. It wasn't even a blip on the horizon. It was, oh well, everybody does this. I must be unlucky. Mm -hmm. But what I've learned, what I learned later was that there are plenty of people out there that are not a drug addict or alcoholic that has a negative consequence. In other words, many people have experiences with having a little bit too much to drink. Mm -hmm. And many people may even have experience get, having too much to drink and getting behind the wheel of a car. And let's just say they have, they got a DWI, okay? The difference between me and them is they go, oh crap, I got a DWI, I need to either quit or cut back drinking, 
and they actually quit or cut back drinking. Right? They quit doing that thing which got them in trouble. Or they say, I'm only going to have two drinks tonight, and they have only two drinks that they night. They can or, control it, yeah. Right, right. So, so they have some sort of negative consequence, whether it's, you know, getting in trouble with the relationship at work, something. And then they go, I'm going to cut back, and they cut back. Me, it, was, it never was that. It was, oh, shoot, I'm not going to do it that way again. I'm going to do it this way. Or um, I remember the last time I got arrested, I got arrested four times in three years, and the last time I got arrested, um, I thought to myself, I got arrested in December. My court date wasn't until May. So it never crossed my mind to stop. Mm. I thought, which I'll tell you in, in a little bit, um, but the first thought that I uh, had when I was in the back of that car was finally someone's going to help me with my drinking oh, and wow. using, but I still didn't conceptually understand that I had an issue. Yeah. I just thought that I was, you know, like I was just unlucky and, you know, like I kind of had it in the back of my mind that I need to cut back, but I wasn't. So I'm like, oh, well, now I'm going to get on probation and then I'm going to have to check in. So I'll naturally cut back. But I didn't stop. Mm -hmm. I didn't stop even up into my court date, even though I tried. And that was, you know, when thinking about addiction, before that moment, that very last time, I thought I could stop whenever I wanted to. I just didn't want to. Yeah. But that last time leading up to court, I was like, this was the first time that I ever said, okay, I'm going to cut back or I'm going to stop, and I wasn't actually able to. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and, and that was kind of like, huh, that's weird. But still, I didn't know anybody that was, a, quote, quote, unquote, a drug addict or alcoholic in recovery, and I didn't know anybody that really didn't drink. I mean, and I did know people that didn't drink, but in my mind, they were either super square or they were born again Christians. Yeah. In my mind, I'm like going, screw that. I'm not going to be, I don't want to be like that. They're, you know, they're square. I'm like, but I didn't know anybody that I considered as like cool, someone I'd want to hang out with that had experience with this stuff. So it just still didn't cross my mind that there was a, there was an addiction issue. It was okay. long, it was after that that I figured that out. Okay. So, kind of getting back to the timeline, before I yeah. cut off your story, you, you said that you were kicked out of your mom's house. So, when was that? It was right after high school? I, I, I was thinking about this. I was, I was like 18 or 19. I got okay. an August birthday, so I graduated high school when I was 17. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I attempted college and, and didn't do very well. I was really going to meet girls instead of going to college. But, um, but uh, I was probably like 19. 18 or 19 somewhere in there but going back to this idea of as long as I show up and go to work and pay my way I can do whatever I want well here's the thing I thought I was paying my way but I was living at home yeah and when I was living at home I was you know I was a, a teen I was being disrespectful to my mother I didn't want to do chores <laughs> I didn't want to be told what to do and so eventually they said yo you're gonna have to move around and, and, and leave and so of course I'm like this is, you know, this is great. Of course, I'm leaving. You know, whatever. I think I moved in with a with the group, my girlfriend at the time, and and things really ramped up there because I, uh, um, I want to say maybe I was around 19. Because so for the first time, I had no oversight, mm -hmm. um, and I was uh, I waited some tables. I, I always juggled waiting tables in real estate for about 10 years, and so in that, you know, in that uh, restaurant environment, you know, we would go. You know, we were drinking and using at work. That was just kind of part of the culture. So, um, so anyway, that's when kind of things ramped up, and um, and that, I guess my my timeline for uh, I got my first DWI at seventeen. Um, two years later, I got a drug possession. A year later, I got another DWI, and then four months later, I got another drug possession by the same cop that gave me uh, my DWI four months before. So talk about this idea in, in uh, drug and alcohol addiction. We talk about um, per, uh, the disease of alcoholism and, and drug addiction is progressive, incurable, and fatal, which means that it, uh, you know, it always gets worse. Um, uh, well, and I guess I'm better. curious, when you get arrested, what happens, like, do they enroll you in any sort of program? I guess I'm just kind of curious as, as someone sure. who doesn't know, yeah. So there's this deal uh, well, so this is an example of I went. I always got out of trouble. So my um, 
you know, get one of the benefits of, of knowing a lot of people is I, um, you know, my parents knew people, so I would kind of skirt uh, consequences, and that's a big part of my story is I did not, um, part of the reason that kept me using was I didn't have any big consequences, so mm-hmm. the first time my first EWI, um, you know, my dad knew someone in the, you know, city government, and it kind of just got swept under the rug. Um, the second one, uh, going back to this idea of I thought I was being so responsible because I worked and paid my way, so like my second one, I think the same thing. I got my, my family knew someone in, in the county, and I got out of that, and then the third one, I had enough money, I paid a lawyer and got out of that, so, you know, I, I was skirting the system quite a bit, you know, right. going back to this idea of my parents were quite open with me about things, um, you know, all of my friends had been had discussed with the law in some way, shape, or form, and so we kind of knew, you know, like, hey, if you get a DBI, don't, you know, don't give them a breathalyzer, or, hey, if you, you know, uh, get in trouble with with drugs, you know, these are kind of some ways around it. So I was always able to skirt responsibility until the very last time. The very last time was when I really. You know, there was no no more get out of jail free cards. There was no paying a lawyer. I was caught red-handed. Um, you know, there was no, you know, there was no getting around it. And that's kind of when things started to, uh, you know, when I started facing some consequences. That's when I started to have to really look at it. Okay. So prior to that happening, there wasn't really anybody telling you you should get help per se. It was more just. Kind of like, no, I mean, it was kind of like, you know, the first one or two was like, well, you know, hey, uh, hey, we've all kind of been there. We've, mm-hmm. we've all gotten in the car when we shouldn't have. We've all, you know, I mean, I was, here's the other thing. I was underage, and so where we lived, it was a big college town. So if you got pulled over underage with even having a half a beer, if you had alcohol on your breath, getting pulled over underage, you automatically got a DWI. Okay. And so, you know, you could get pulled over for, for anything and, and, and get get technically in trouble for it. But, you know, the first couple, it's kind of like, well, you know, he's unlucky, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I got out of trouble, kind of no harm, no foul. Hey, you know, this was kind of from our the adult influences in my life. We're like, hey, look, man, just cut back, be responsible. Um, you know, you're a good kid, you go to work, whatever. A lot of the people that we associated with, you know, they're business owners, they're workers, you know, we were kind of solid in the, in the middle, maybe lower middle class, but, you know, these these were all functioning, upstanding, productive members of, of, mm-hmm. of our community. It wasn't like, you know, uh, people that were getting in trouble and, and not keeping jobs, and so... What, what had happened with that ramping up period of how my arrests got closer and closer together. You know, my parents are getting, you know, more and more disappointed going, what is going on with you? Um, and, you know, no, none of us knew what was going on. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know that, like I said, I didn't know anything about addiction at this point. And so um, until my hand was forced, um, I didn't. I, ne- I just did not cross my mind that the drugs and alcohol might be an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, at what so, point did you go to rehab? Was it you voluntarily going, or uh, no? This is this is a um, this is an interesting story, and I'm I'm I'm, uh, um, I'm trying to figure out how I can tie it in at some point with a book or something. But the last time I got arrested was. Um, in December, and me and my, my girlfriend at the time, we had been out um, partying and having a good time, and my license was suspended because I got arrested four months earlier. I clipped a curb um, while I was driving down the road uh, and ended up getting arrested. Uh, I wasn't even really uh, really that drunk, but just because I was underage and I had alcohol in my breath, I, I went to jail. But anyway, so my license was suspended, my girlfriend was driving. Um, we get pulled over because our, my headlight was out. She was driving my car. And uh, we get pulled over and we give them our license. And I didn't know that when your license gets suspended, you need to mail your license to the state. Mm-hmm. And so I gave him a suspended license, but I wasn't driving. And so the guy pulls me out of the car and he said, Hey, look, um, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm the one that arrested you four months ago. And of course I go, Oh, 
you know, hi. Yeah. <laughs> it was what do you say to that? Yeah. <laughs> right. It's kind of awkward. But, uh, but he said, hey, look, thanks for not driving. You're doing what you're supposed to do. I'm going to let you go with a warning. And then he looks down, and I was wearing, it was the winter, so I was wearing this sweater, and I had a, a little uh, stick of, of a green substance that is illegal that you smoke. Mm-hmm. Some people call it marijuana. So I had a, a stick of marijuana in my sweater, and he's like, what, what's that? And of course, I try to play it off. He searched me, found my, uh, found my stash that I had, and so he took me to jail. And so I'm in the back of this police car. Um, and I distinctly remember, it wasn't like, oh my God, what am I doing? Oh my God, I got to get my stuff together. Oh, what about my parents? What about my real estate license, which, you know, you can lose your license for getting arrested in trouble. Um, it was finally, someone's going to help me with my using. Yeah. And so, you know, I go to jail. At this point, going to jail was relatively normal. I'd, I'd been there four months before. It wasn't new. I knew I was going to get out like I always do. I paid my bond, got out. And um, and so on with this cycle of I knew my court date wasn't for five months. It, remember, I didn't think I was really doing anything wrong. I thought I was unlucky. And so I said, you know what, I'm gonna, I'll stop you know, smoking weed and doing other stuff a month before my court date. That way I can show up to court clean. I can give it a, you know, a UA, um, urine analysis, what they call that. So, um, and I said, four four weeks out, I'm going to stop. Well, four weeks rolled around and I'm like, you know, Sunday and I'm going, all right, tomorrow's it. I'm going to stop. And I didn't, um, I go, okay, three weeks, three weeks is, uh, that's enough time to get it all out of my system. Three weeks rolled around. I couldn't stop. I was like, two weeks, that's it, because it takes about two weeks for a week to get out of your system. And two weeks, that's it. Two weeks rolled around, I couldn't stop. And then it go, uh, I go, well, I'm just going to do what I always do, which is, you know, I was, I was well-spoken. I starched my clothes down in Texas. We, we starch everything. But I starched my clothes. I tucked my shirt in. I can speak okay. And so I was just going to go in and say, hey, guys, you know, sorry. I haven't, you know, stopped and figured I'd get a slap on the wrist like I always do. And, um. And I went in and told my probation officer, yeah, I haven't stopped using. And he said, thanks for being honest, but you need to come in and give me a, a UA every week. And I even remember being shocked that he was having me come in every week because, you know, as far as I know about probation, you reported every month. And so uh, he definitely wasn't having it. And he, you know, said, oh, by the way, you have been arrested four times in three years, right? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, okay, so come in next week. So on goes the cycle of trying to stop on my own willpower mm-hmm. and that's a lot that's something that a lot of times we talk about in drug and alcohol addiction is willpower alone isn't enough well I'm really glad that you mentioned that like you thought you would stop you couldn't you thought you couldn't because I think yeah. it's so important for people listening to know that like that's what addiction is is that you cannot stop so right. I, I appreciate you sharing that so go ahead with your the rest well, of it and I think too, this is something that's really important and, and come you know, with this theme of shining a light and having a normalizing conversation and you know, when you hang around people that are it's normal to, to drink and, and experiment and do other things, this is not a normal conversation about not being able to stop. And in one of the twelve step fellowships they call it controlled drinking. And controlled drinking is um, you know, if you're wondering if you're an alcoholic or not, you go into a bar and say, try to have two beers. And you do that, see how long you can do that for. And then if you find that you can't over a period of time, then you might have an issue. Mm-hmm. Because a normal person, if they say they're not going to, they don't. Yeah. And so I, that was kind of my first experience with attempting. And so this next stage was this idea of um, obsession and compulsion that I didn't really know about. So what happened was when he said, um, he said, you need to come back next week. You know, I was living with the girl at the time and she was, she was, uh, you know, similar to me. And, um, and she goes, look, what, you know, I'm not the one that got in trouble. So I'm going to keep drinking and using the way we normally do. And you can just be my designated driver. And of course I'm like, okay, fine. Well, I found out quickly that going to part college parties as a, as a 20 something, uh, not drinking is not very fun. So around 10 o'clock in the, in the evening, I'd want to go home. Of course, she'd want to stay out like we always do. But what, what happened was I was I was abstinent for a couple of weeks, and then I'm like, you know what? You know, uh, alcohol is in and out of your system in 24 hours. Why don't I just have a you know, beer or two? And so I did that, and, and I was successful. 
And then the next weekend, I'm like, yeah, I'll do it again, have a couple of beers. And then maybe I had like, you know, two to four beers. And my tolerance was down. So I got a little buzz. And I'm like, man, this is great. I'm, I'm drinking so, I'm drinking a lot less. I'm able to drive. You know, I get a little buzz. But what happened was this idea of obsession and compulsion is in the back of my mind, Drinking or using some sort of foreign substance, some sort of outside mood or mind altering substance is always in the back of my mind. Like, when am I going to be able to do it again? Or yeah. how can I do it and get away with it? Or if I only use a little of this and a little of that, I can be able to give a clean UA. So it's, it's always this idea of like, when and how can about. I? Yeah. Yeah. Right? And then the other part is the compulsion. Once I start, it's very difficult to moderate and regulate. Not that, um, when I drink, because this is this is an interesting topic. When you hear the idea of compulsion, you think of like a rabid drug user or alcoholic who gets sloshed every time they touch a drop, and that's not the definition of compulsion that I'm talking about. This compulsion was, I had a couple of beers one weekend, successful. I had a couple of beers the next weekend, successful. I got drunk the next weekend, successful. But it kept getting more and more and closer together. So instead of, I'm going to my probation officer every Tuesday to give a urine analysis. But what started out as Saturday night turned into Friday and Saturday night, turned into Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. Mm -hmm. Then because I like drugs, alcohol wasn't enough. Alcohol was always a part, but then I started working in like the heavier drugs. The heavier drugs are in and out of your system. Even though that wasn't necessarily my drug of choice, I would use anything to change the way I feel. And so like this progression, so what I was also doing was, uh, they have all kind of drinks now, but um, these drinks that you can uh, that you can take to give a clean urine, um, some of them work, some of them don't, but I was going into my probation officer and I was drinking these, these drinks that were supposed to give me clean urine because I was so paranoid because I wouldn't follow the rules. Right, and you knew you weren't, and, yeah. And I knew I wasn't. So even though I, I didn't want to risk it, so I would drink these drinks. And so um, eventually, over this summertime, my addiction progressed. I didn't know I, I was suffering from the disease of alcoholism and drug addiction. So it just got more and more and more. And before you know it, um, I was smoking weed. Well, you know, uh, weed takes a long time to get out of your system. So here I am even more in need of these drinks and so at the at the uh, towards the end of the summer my probation officer calls me into a supervisor's office and let's Megan I was so oblivious so oblivious mm -hmm. I thought that because I showed up for my appointments and I paid my fees and I was you know well spoken and I tucked my shirt in uh, and we had good I had good relationship with my probation officer I thought he was going to tell me how great I was doing <laughs> as a prob on probation and he goes, hey, here's the thing, bro. Um, the last nine UAs that you've given me have been so diluted, you're either putting water in them or you're not a human. <laughs> <laughs> because I was that was what that was the strategy. I drank so much water that you couldn't get. Well, I didn't know this, but they couldn't get a reading, so they couldn't get a reading of drugs, but they equally couldn't get a reading that I was a human. Right. And so um, he said, so that tells me that you're doing something you're not supposed to. So. If you give me one more uh, diluted or dirty UA, I'm going to revoke your probation and you're going to go to jail. And so um, that's kind of when the gig was up. Um, the other thing was when I went to, um, when I got on probation that very first time in, in May, the summertime for me was a bit the busy time for real estate. We were in college town and so I the, my probation officer told me I needed to go to probate, um, to treatment in May, and I said, hey, look, you know, my, it's a busy time. Is there any way we can postpone it to the end? And he goes, yeah, sure, no problem. Um, again, not knowing what was about to happen for me, I didn't know what was about to happen with this progression, but I needed that time to try to, um, I needed that time to try to regulate my own drug and alcohol use. Yeah. And so by the end, I said, okay, fine, I'm ready to go. You know, I had to go get an assessment in, in the, um, what they typically do is if someone thinks they have a drug and alcohol issue, they'll go get an assessment with a therapist, and then the, uh, then the therapist will make a recommendation. Does this, this person need to go inpatient in like a you know 30-day facility, a two-week facility? Do, can they just do what's called outpatient, which is like a, either a day program or an evening program? 
And so what I did was uh, they recommended that I go to IOP, which um, what that was, it was some, some uh, companies call it rehab after work. So I would work from like, you know, eight or nine to five, and then I'd go to, to outpatient rehab from six to nine. Because that was another thing that I, um, you know, a lot of people that are in this, uh, you know, struggle with drug and alcohol addiction, we make up these rules um, and reasons why we're not an alcoholic. And one of mine was that you were alcoholics use at work. Yeah. You know, people people that have a problem, they, they don't show up to work, number one. They don't pay their bills, and they use while they're working. Mm-hmm. Well, I show up to work, I pay my bills, and I don't use while I'm working, so I'm definitely not an alcoholic. So for me, you know, that rehab after work worked really well because it was after work that I really had the big the big struggles. Yeah. And so, um, and actually, the, the the crazy thing, Megan, was, at even at that point when they go, you know what, you might have a drug and alcohol issue, and I'm like, you guys are so crazy. I mean, my parents, they're business owners. I know all these people that drink and do, you know, smoke weed. That when I say drugs, most of it was weed, but mm-hmm. I would binge on harder stuff. But I said, you know, most, I know so many people that are responsible members of our society that do this. There's no way that I'm a, that I'm a drug addict. Or an alcoholic, and so what I did was I said, "All right, look, I'll quit the drug. The drugs are illegal. I, I can understand that, but but alcohol, alcohol is legal. I don't have an issue with alcohol. You know, there's you know, blah blah blah. So I was going to rehab Monday through Thursday. Um, they mandated that I go to twelve step meetings. Twelve step is like Alcoholics Anonymous, mm-hmm. Narcotics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous. These are twelve step meetings. So I was going to meetings on the weekends, but I was also drinking on the weekends. Um, so the insane. So you were like checking off what they wanted you to do, but still doing what you wanted. Right. Well, not and wanted to do. Need it felt like you needed to do. Yeah, I mean, I was again this idea of I thought that drug addicts and alcoholics have absolutely zero control over their consumption. Mm -hmm. And I had control in a lot of ways. You know, I was able to function and maintain um, in a lot of ways. And so, again, going back to this idea of normalizing the conversation, very few people understand what drug addiction and alcoholism is. Yeah. Uh, Every time, I was at a, I did a talk the other day, Megan at a school, and I said, you know, there was probably 50 or 60 people in there. And I said, raise your hand if you know someone that struggles with drug and alcohol addiction. And every single person mm-hmm. in that room raised their hand. I said, hey, raise your hand if you know someone that struggles with mental health, anxiety, depression, panic attacks, bipolar. Every single person raised their hand. But yet nobody knows or understands this idea of the difference between, you know, Heavy and moderate drinking or using, or what is you know what is alcoholism, the disease of alcoholism, the disease of drug addiction, and of course I didn't either. Right. I I thought there was nothing wrong with what I was doing. So what what was the light switch moment then that you decided? So that that's a good question. The the light switch switch moment for me was, um, I was. So I would do those groups during the during the week, and part of that was you had a one-on-one session with a counselor. And so I was having these one-on-one session with a counselor. And so I remember specifically her saying, "I was saying, look, I don't, I understand. I think I might be a drug addict. I think you know that's bad. I don't want to do drugs and smoke weed, whatever. But the alcohol, I just don't understand. I don't think I'm an alcoholic." And so she goes, "So Preston." Um, let's look at your arrest record. And I go, okay, great. She goes, don't you have two DWIs from alcohol? And I'm like, yeah, but I mean, I'm a minor. I wasn't drunk. I was a minor and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I had, had a response. And she goes, okay, so you got two DWIs, fine. Um, the, aren't you on probation? And I go, yeah. She goes, well, on probation, the contract you signed says you cannot drink alcohol. Is that correct? And I go, well, yeah. I mean, you got a point there, but I mean, everybody should be able to drink a little. It's not like I'm out getting drunk and hammered and all this. Um, and then she goes, and your probation officer said, if you get kicked out of this rehab, that he's going to revoke your probation, right? And I'm like, yeah, you know, whatever. And she goes, well, you know, in this rehab that we say you can't drink. Yeah, all. I get yeah. that. So she's like laying all this out for me. And then she goes, so your butt is on the line. Your 
in treatment, which we say you can't drink. You're on probation, which you say you can't drink. You have four arrests in three years. Two of them are alcohol-specific. And you're insisting that you don't have an issue with alcohol. And I go, yes. And she goes, well, if it wasn't a, such a problem, this program's only six weeks long. Someone that doesn't have a drug and alcohol problem should be able to quit for six weeks, right? And I go, yeah, you got a point. So, so like that was the that was kind of the the a bit of a switch of like, huh, maybe she's onto something here. Yeah. And so this was a this was a Thursday, and on Friday I went to a twelve step meeting. And on that Saturday, I went to a 12-step meeting, and I planned to go across the street and meet with some friends to go drink. And I remember going to this 12-step meeting, and I'll go across the street, and I reach, open the refrigerator, and I reach in, it's full of beer, and I grab a beer, and I, you know how a can makes when you, you yeah. know, it goes, Psh! and I remember it going, Psh! and I just had this sinking feeling in my gut of flashing back to that conversation of, my ass is on the line, mm-hmm. but yet I'm insisting on... To have this beer, yeah. I'm insisting to keep this substance in my life, and I say I don't, I'm not an alcoholic, and I don't need alcohol, but, but everything is on the line. I'm insisting on doing it. And I remember it was just a flash of like going, dang, man, maybe she's right. So I'd like to say I put the beer back and, and didn't drink, but I got absolutely hammered that night, but I don't even remember it. But that was September the 9th of 2001 and that next day I said okay look I'm gonna do what they asked me to do I don't think I'm an alcoholic but or a drug addict but I'm gonna do what they asked me to do and here was the caveat I said not only am I gonna do what they asked me to do I'm gonna do exactly what they tell me to do if they say go to 12 step means I'm gonna go to 12 step means if they say get a sponsor I'm gonna get a sponsor if they say do this rehab homework I'm gonna do the rehab homework and two things are gonna happen number one either they're wrong and I'm right, my tolerance is going to go way down and it's not going to cost me as much to get hired drunk anymore so, so I can just, you know, save my money and I complete and I prove them wrong. But number two, if they're right, maybe I have an opportunity to have a life beyond my wildest dreams and so it was kind of a win-win situation but it was in that moment when I decided I'm going to give it a shot, I think they're wrong, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. Um, but but I'm gonna try and that was kind of the start and I and I still I still wasn't convinced it took a couple more weeks to figure that out um, yeah. uh, while I was in there but that was that was the start just giving it a shot um, you know and risking going to prison really yeah so did you tell your friends that you kind of made this decision because it sounds like you were around people who were drinking and, and maybe using drugs so how did you break free from that social circle. Well, I was kind of lucky where my, my days were full. You know, okay. I was going, I lived on my, oh, you know, I lived with my girlfriend. Yeah, I was telling her, um, you know, I told her that uh, I was going to, I was working all day, going to rehab at night. Uh, and so uh, I was going to these 12-step meetings. It, it just filled, you know, my friends knew I was in trouble. Mm-hmm. So I kind of backed off a bit. But um, it, it wasn't like... It wasn't I like declared anything yeah. to them. But what what happened was, Megan, this was this was interesting. So I was I was twenty at this point. I was twenty one years old. I'd been I'd been um, twenty one for one month. I at that point I'd never had a drop of legal alcohol in my life. Yeah. Up until twenty one, it was illegal. Even the the, the month that I was actually twenty one and drinking quote unquote legally, I was on probation and in rehab and wasn't supposed to be drinking anyway. So that was illegal too. But um, but everybody in my groups, they were, in my mind, so old. I mean, these were like, they were 40s, 50s, 60s. They had lost houses and jobs and families and teeth, and they had tattoos, and they were heroin drug users. And, all. and I was like, I was like, I am not like these people. If I was as bad as them, then I would stop too, but I'm not like them. I mean, I got my stuff together. I show up to work. I'm a real estate agent. I pay my own way. And so... Um, and so I really had this, I was suffering from uh, being different. Mm-hmm. I thought that because you look different than me and you were from a different place than me and you were a different age and a different race and a different religion that we were somehow different. But what happened was when I stopped drinking, it probably took me about a week or two for the fog to lift, which was kind of shocking because I thought, you know, I didn't know anything about a fog and alcohol was out of your system in 24 hours. But it took about a week to two weeks for the fog to lift 
and I would shut my eyes and I would listen to them share in group. And when I listened to their thoughts, what they were thinking, their feelings, how they felt, their attitude, their reasoning behind, you know, drinking or using or whatever, it finally clicked that not only did I think like them, not only did I feel like them, but they didn't start out down and out at 50 years old just getting out of prison and right. losing their family. They didn't start out there. They started out where I was, keeping it together, paying the bills, having kind of run-ins with the law or even run-ins with a, with a spouse or family members or run-in at work. You know, it, it progressed to that, and that was a bit of an aha moment for me going, holy crap, I might be like them. And then the next part, Megan, was... It start, I go, you know what? I think like them. I've never told anybody I thought like that, and they're telling they're telling the group my thoughts, and I've never told anybody this. I feel like them. I've never told anybody I felt this way, but yet they're telling my story to the group. I think I'm an alcohol, a drug addict and alcoholic, but then the other part was the insecurity. I didn't think I could do it. Mm. I didn't think I was worth it. I didn't think I was good enough. I didn't think... I didn't know a person in the world that wasn't square, that didn't drink or use drugs. I just didn't think I could do it. And so that was kind of set down a path of, of, um, uh, of tons and tons and tons of meetings, tons of, of personal development work, only hanging out with people that used the way I used but then didn't anymore, mm -hmm. um, which is something that I'm really you know passionate about when it comes to mental health and addiction, which we can get into in a minute. But that was kind of that just start of, um, you know, just one step in front of the other. I didn't even I, – I remember thinking maybe I can make it a month. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like I'm going to stop forever. It was like they're right. Maybe I can make it to the end of the month. And I'm like, well, shoot, maybe I can make it six weeks, and maybe I make it to the end of the year, and um, and it just the confidence kind of started building, and and um, you know, my life started to change. Yeah, I mean, that was a long time ago now. So, <laughs> what is what is your life like now, and how did you get into wanting to help other people with this? Well, the um, you know, the there's so many cool and amazing things that happened in my recovery. For example, um, you know, when I was uh, first getting sober, uh, I went to a meeting every day for probably four, uh, four or five years, and when I mean meeting, 12-step meetings. Mm -hmm. I only hung around with people that didn't uh, use or drink. Um, you know, my parents were like, I remember them going, you know, before when I was getting in trouble, they're like, dude, can you quit getting in trouble? And then I go, mom, dad, I'm an alcoholic. And they're like, yeah, come on, man, you're not an alcoholic. Just cut back. Um, I went to college. I, I was a, I cheated my way through high school. I I I, I, um, I went to college. Uh, started out at community college for four years. Transferred to Texas A&M. Graduated. I met my wife. Married way above my my league there. I moved. Um, I always had dreams of kind of traveling and, and getting out of my hometown. I went on study abroad in South America. I went to meetings in South America as part of my college program. Moved to the Northeast Philadelphia. And, um, you know, all the while, you know, drug and alcohol addiction, recovery, personal development, getting down to the root cause of, of what I know now is mental health stuff, but mm -hmm. getting down to the root cause, being a solution, helping other people. But I, but I was always in sales. I, I didn't think um, I would tell, uh, I remember telling my, um, my advisor in college in like 2006 or something, I was like, you know, I like counseling, but I don't want to be a counselor. I like teaching, but I don't want to be a teacher. Um, and I didn't honestly, just because of lack of uh, lack of uh, experience, I didn't think you could. My association with drug and alcohol addiction was twelve step fellowships, which are free and volunteer, or being a counselor or a nurse. And I didn't want to do anything like that, so I went into sales, learned a lot of really great skills. And um, this is a an interesting story. So I went to. So we just moved to Columbus right before Christmas. Um, and so I, I, I was kind of down and out uh, a couple of years ago, desperate, working six days a week. I was selling flooring. Um, I was unhappy. I kind of just threw my hands up and gave up. I've been trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up for a long time. I was trying to, quote, unquote, figure out what my passion was. And I finally just threw my hands up and just gave up and said, 
this is what I'm going to be doing. I went to a personal development weekend. It's called the Landmark Forum. Still to this day, one of the most profound personal development weekends I've ever been on. And my only goal was help me figure out what I want to, you know, like a passion or what do I want to do in my career. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so remember, up until this time, I've been trying everything. I've really been trying to figure out and make it, right? And that next year, I had the best year I'd ever had financially, and I didn't even try. I made more money than I'd ever made in one year. Didn't even try. Um, what I mean by didn't try, I showed up to work, but it wasn't like I set a goal and accomplished the goal and all that kind of stuff. I paid off like $40,000 in, in credit card debt, and we came out to Columbus, Ohio, uh, on a whim, on a five-day little jaunt vacation to a to an expos of uh, country living fair, and we... Uh, I'd never been to Ohio before. We pull into town. I was like, man, this place feels cool, man. I like this. They had a big college. We drove around. And I remember uh, my wife and I were fighting that night, and I left and went to a to a 12-step meeting. I remember driving home by myself going, this is a really cool place. I like the feel here. And so uh, we spent five days. We drove back to Philadelphia. Me and my wife walked around that neighborhood that night, and we go, let's move to Columbus. We, wow. we put our house on the market. Three days later, um, we started looking for jobs, and I had three job offers on the table from flooring companies. And I remember calling my mentor and saying, "I just do not want to do it, but I got to support the family. What do I do?" And he goes, "Dude, quit complaining. What do you want to do?" I was like, "Well, I'd like to work in you know rehab or something." So a month before we moved, I turned down those three jobs. We moved to Columbus. This was four months after we'd been here. I'd never been to Ohio in my life. We had no intention of moving. Four months later, we're moving. I have no job. We rented our house out, and I just started looking for for uh, for work in drug and alcohol treatment and um, networking, going to networking events, asking who do you know. Um, and I ended up getting a shot with a, a friend of mine introduced me to uh, my now boss who works at Columbus Springs. I didn't know the difference between an alcohol and drug rehab and mental health. But I ended up landing a job and started in March, and uh, and now I go talk to schools, I talk to doctors' offices, pediatricians' offices, wow. uh, government agencies, or whatever, and just talk about mental health and, and addiction. So when crisis comes up or when someone needs some extra help, um, you know, hopefully they send them to one of our programs. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, that's I started my podcast. I've been writing a book. I met you. I mean, just my creativity over the last couple of months has just exploded and it's just because I'm no longer talking about you know drug and alcohol and mental health you know when I'm off work I'm actually talking about it while I'm working yeah. and so it just everything is just it's been so easy it's just been it's just happened mm -hmm. That's like, without awesome. any effort which is which is crazy I've never really felt that before yeah um, I have, we're kind of running low on time, but I have a couple questions that I sure. want to make sure I get in. Um, sure, sure. One um, is what can other people do if someone in their life is suffering from an addiction? So that's kind of something that, um, that's a very good question. And that's kind of the first step. I'm a huge, huge biased fan of, uh, support groups, support style groups. Um, and, uh, I've benefited a lot from support groups, and here, here's my my angle. There, there's a there's a lot of um, you know resources out there and, and therapists and counselors, and that's 100% a part of it. But my thought is, if you want to learn to be, you know, a, a plumber, for example, then go hang out with plumbers. If you want to be a hairstylist, go hang out with hairstylists. Don't go hang out at the hair salon trying to be a plumber. So my my biased opinion is if you think you might be struggling with drug, drug and alcohol addiction or mental health, go around people that have it. So if you think someone that has that issue, the first step would be like, hey, let's look up a couple counselors or therapists. Let's go get an assessment. Let's just explore this. Let's go to a, a support group that's free and let's just let's just see if anything you know identifies. I, I feel like that's one of the challenges that we face in mental health and addiction help today is most of the work that we do is crisis focused. It's not prevention focused. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like that if we can have 
if we can have these normalizing conversations more up front, make them more okay up front, that, that you don't wait until someone's suicidal before you reach out. Right. You know, right now, um, we have to wait until they're suicidal, so then we got to go to a mental health hospital. Um, yeah. You know, we're, we're kind of working on our heels. Um, the, you know, I do, one of the ways I met you is I actually have a podcast. Um, it's called uh, The High Cost of Anonymity. And on there, I talk about, um, you know, anonymity is this idea of, of remaining anonymous, not having a name, not kind of putting your business out there. It's oftentimes associated with 12-step organizations. But, and, and it has its part, it's had it has its place, it has its purpose, and it's important. But I feel like there's a high cost, not only at the community level, for example, if I don't tell people I have experience with drug and alcohol addiction and recovery, if I don't tell my neighbors, the people I work with, my friend Megan from Facebook, if I don't talk about this, if you have a friend or family member that's struggling, you don't even know that you can reach out to me. Right. right? You're stuck calling an 800 number or your insurance company. Right, so that's number one. There's a high cost to community because I don't talk about it. Um, same thing with mental health. My wife, uh, four months ago, she ended up in uh, suicidal out of the blue. Um, she's open about it, you know, because if someone is having that issue, we want them to be able to reach out and ask for help. So that's number one, high cost at the community level. But, but there's a extremely high cost when it comes to getting help from our county, state, and federal governments, and insurance. For example, let's say your friend uh, is struggling with, with drug addiction, right? And you say, come on, let's go. Then he says, I'm ready, I'm tired, I'm ready to go get some help. You go to the hospital, and you say, hey, I'm struggling with drug and alcohol addiction, I want to get help. And they go, well, what are you using? They go, meth. They go, well, we don't cover meth, we only oh cover hair. Oh, my heroin. God. That's right. Oh, my That's God. right. So then... They go, and then they might turn them away, or um, let's just say they get you in, they let you in, and the doctor says you need 90 days of treatment, and the insurance company says we'll pay for 20 days of treatment. So the only reason they have the ability to do that is that's how the system is set up. Drug and out, um, pharma, pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies spend billions of dollars lobbying our gov government to make laws to allow them to operate the way they operate, and I'm pro-business, so you know that's part of the game, that's how the game's set up, they should be doing that. But where we need to be able to make an impact is at our community level, having these normalizing conversations so people feel comfortable enough. They're, these nonprofits and these 12-step fellowships and these individuals are not going to spend billions of dollars lobbying right, the government. Right, they don't have the money, yeah. That's right. And they're embarrassed and ashamed, so they're not going to—they're not going to come out and say it. But if we can make it part of our normal conversation, if we can work more on prevention instead of crisis, that we can have more conversations where we get more people when they go to vote, or when they go talk to their elected official, or when they get to—you know—you already see the debates going on right now. We can stand up and say, put more money towards mental health and addiction. We can vote yes when they say, should we up the the county and state funds for mental health and addiction, yes. Um, we need to, and, and people need to know what the hell to vote on. You know, right. like it's, it's like, I don't want to be, when we talk about mental health and addiction, it's very, very important to talk about it in a positive, productive way and not be a victim. In other words, I don't want to be a government basher and an insurance and pharmaceutical basher, right? Because right. nobody wants to listen to you, you're complaining. But how do we have a responsible and productive uh, conversation and move the conversation forward so we can, number one, be aware, but number two, work within the system that we have because we we're not changing it. You know, It's slow change. We're not going to change it tomorrow. But have those conversations so when your friend, neighbor, coworker says, I think I might have, you know, I think I might have an issue, they feel comfortable enough asking. And then we can connect them with services and, um, and and next steps, so we don't wait until they're full on suicidal, having a panic attack, right. or having to quit their job. You know, we go, oh, what happened to you know Joe? Where did he go? You know, it's like let's have these conversations up front where it's normal, um, you know, and and then safe. I guess that's yeah. Probably Something I've been asking my guests recently is, other than documentaries and kind of real life, is there any popular media that you feel like is portraying addiction well? Like they're showing 
what it actually is like. Um, I just like to point that out because I feel like we've gotten better with media in, in showing issues like this. So is there anything that you think is doing a good job at portraying it? Um, there's a, so there's a couple people that I do like that, um, are doing stuff like this, like Dak Shepard. I don't yeah, know if you've I love heard him. him. Yeah. I love him. He, he's good at, he, I like, there's a couple things I like about him. Number one, he breaks his anonymity, so he talks yeah. about AA quite regularly. Um, number two, he has really interesting guests that talk about a lot of these, you know, therapy mm-hmm. development to where it, you know, you discover things that maybe you didn't know. Uh, Mark Marin does a pretty good job doing this as well. There's a guy, this is a new guy. He's, uh, I've actually recently started building a relationship with him. His name's Aaron Lane. He's got a podcast called Tragedy to Triumph. And, um, you know, he talks about these people going from like hopeless to hopeful and they tell their story and it's kind of gritty and they talk about like, you know, these are oftentimes people that are advocates of mental health and addiction, a couple of doctors that just having the conversation of you can be these down and out struggling addicted people and you could there is solutions out there there is help and so that's pretty good um yeah i'm a big fan of podcasts I listen to joe rogan short story long um what would you tell someone who's kind of in the dark right now struggling with addiction um well first off i would say uh it's okay because there's a lot of people struggling with addiction and I think it's easy to think that you're the only one and you're a loser and you can't get your stuff together and you know you're the only one that has you know some of these problems so it can be quite isolating so number one is it's okay there's a lot of people out there and number two that there's help there's there's um, uh, there are solutions out there and probably what I would do is um, start looking into organizations, i.e. 12-step fellowships, where there are people that use the way you use, think the way you think, felt the way you felt, um, did the things that you do, the things that you think nobody else did that you feel shameful and guilty about, um, like a loser. They did them too, but here's the best thing. They found a way out of it, and they have a life that they never could have imagined. Before we wrap up, I always have my guests tell me somebody that they want to build up. So my dad... You mentioned your dad passed away from cancer before we started recording, I think. My dad also did. But one of the things that he always told us is build each other up, don't tear each other down. So I've tied that into my podcast by asking every guest to give me somebody that they want to build up. Well, that, it sounds, sounds like your dad was a good man because that's, <laughs> that's 100% uh, uh, accurate. Um, yeah, like um, if I could just maybe point out a couple of resources and people that yeah. I think would be beneficial for your uh, podcasters to listen to. Um, one, Dak Shepard, I love that guy. He, yeah. um, and I'll say this, my uh, my wife, which um, I probably don't tell her enough, but you know she's been through a lot. She's been a life coach for, for 10 years, um, but she's been a life coach for 10 years, and she's gone through a lot of struggles, like this idea of building um, a business and realizing how freaking hard it is, and it just—I mean, she when we moved here, um, you know, and, uh, we moved, we she we moved to Ohio. She she's big in chiropractic and uh, Chinese medicine and acupuncture. She didn't have her chiropractic and acupuncture. She had her support group. She's a member of a twelve-step fellowship that focuses on families. She didn't have that. We changed jobs. We have a three-year-old, and I don't know how long it was, but. She's just she's just a grinder, you know. She um, she constantly looks at herself. She has a number of mentors. She has a coach. She actually coaches for a for a bigger organization, um, uh, and then she does her own like speaking engagement stuff on the side. But I'm just really proud of her. She's doing a lot, taking it slow, like getting back on the on the horse. But um, she's just a great representation um, of a person that is going after something she loves, but it just being a rocky road you know she's had really high 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 highs and she's had some low lows and she's still just truck you know uh, trucking along and doing her thing and just trying to get better as a person and one of the things that makes her you know uh, light up is helping other women very similar to what we're doing right here she just loves helping women go from you know how do I be the person, the lady that I have had in my mind and what's blocking me, and she works through a lot of people. Um, She just loves doing it, and it helps her, I guess. (laughs) 
Where can people find you on social media if they have some more questions um, for you? So, uh, thank you for asking. On Instagram, I'm K Preston Moore. Um, K is Christopher. Uh, so yeah, it's K Preston Moore on Instagram. My podcast is called um, the High Cost of Anonymity uh, Podcast, where I talk about uh, most. This is a, a perfect example of, I know, Megan, you, you talked about you know wanting to start this podcast for a long time, and I've been saying I want to do a podcast, and I had all the excuses. Oh, I don't have a microphone. Yeah. Oh, I don't have the whatever, and the clip art, and whatever, and my boy Gary Vee just r- rang in the back of my head. He's like, just do it. Nobody's going to care about it in five years anyway, so just do it. So I'm just <laughs> talking about like conversations I've, you know, embarrassing stuff I've done with my mother-in-law press. Yeah. Um, you know, struggle to have. How do you tell people you're in recovery? Um, that couple, I've given a couple talks. I've told my stories. I'm just putting everything on there, mm-hmm. and so they're just like trying to just normalize and have these conversations about thoughts, feelings, attitudes, behaviors. How do I be a better man, father, husband? Um, just things I'm passionate about, and just give people an excuse to ask for help. That's really, um, really it. So Instagram, my podcast. Um, and uh, look, if anybody's struggling with mental health or addiction issues, whether it's um, you know anxiety, depression, panic attacks, bipolar, or you know feel like they're drinking too much, please reach out, ask for help. I'm down. I'll take phone calls. I'll take you know hit me up on Instagram. I do not care. Okay, well, I think that we might have to do a part two because I feel like I could hear listen to you talk all day. You had so much good <laughs> stuff to share. People listening, if you have questions about that, kind of navigating the mental health field and getting the help um, as far as logistically, not just the courage to ask for help, I think send your questions in and we can definitely schedule that conversation because I think it's an important one to have in addition to this one. So, um, Preston, thank you again. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um,